0: Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. As the early church dealt with the question of who Jesus was, as they immersed themselves in the synoptics and in uh, Paul, they uh, uh, began to sense that Jesus had a very special relationship to God. Very intimate. It was different from theirs because he said, uh, now when I go to my God and to your God. And uh, when he prayed, they knew that his relationship to God was different from, from theirs. So there is A relationship between Jesus and God that ultimately, they said, is ontological. That was their technical term. They are of consubstantial nature, the same nature. Our relationship is a metaphorical relationship to that. It is like it, but it is different. But we are children of God, but not in the same way that he is the Son of God. And that term, Son of God, was profoundly moving for them. Now, as they wrestled with that, they began to realize that Jesus, let me put it this way, Jesus never comes alone. When he said, you've seen me, you've seen my father. And if you meet me, you've met my father. And if you listen to me, you've heard my father. So that Jesus, the eternal son, never comes alone. As you read something that comes very obvious, in the Gospel of John. And that is his use of two Greek words, apostello and pempo, both of which mean sin. Now, apostello develops sort of a theological connotation because that's where we get the word apostle. Pempos, very secular. Your wife sends you to the grocery store to get a gallon of milk. But nevertheless, those two words are used by Jesus. And uh, about 40 times in the 20 chapters, 21 chapters, the Gospel of Mark, of John, you will find that term used. Now, so that you get the feeling that Jesus' consciousness was a consciousness of sentness. Now, I think that's one of the reasons that made this African story especially appealing to me, where the African says, are you a sent one? Because do you remember when Jesus said, when he sent out the 12, and when he sent out the 70, he said, if they receive you, they get me, and when they get me, they get my Father." And if they reject you, they miss me, and they miss me, they miss my father. I'm sent from him, and you're sent from me. And if they receive you, they get all three of them, my father, me, and you. Now, uh, that sentness just permeates his consciousness. It's interesting that in the Greek, it's more obvious than it is in the English. If you know anything about Greek, and most of you do, you know the syntax is different from in English, and word order is different. There's one priceless passage where Jesus is talking about his father and the Greek is which literally translated, the sending me father. That's the way he refers to his father, the sending me father. Now, as we said earlier, he said, you know, it's not my life. My father has life in himself. I don't have life in myself. I draw my life in the father. I'm the only begotten being, begotten son. And they say, for heaven's sake, his umbilical cord's never been cut. Now, you see, what my mother bore me for nine months, and then they cut the umbilical cord. And we became two separate individuals. But Jesus says, my umbilical cord's never been cut. I'm still drawing my life out of my father. He says, my words are not my own. <clears throat> my works are not my own. My will is not my own. I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of my father. Now, that raises an interesting question. Who's the main character in the Gospel of John? Who's the main character in all four Gospels? It isn't Jesus. The main character in the Gospels is the Father. Because Jesus is here because of the Father. The Father has sent him. Now, uh, that uh, does something to your Christology. Now, uh, that raises the question on Good Friday, who's the central character? The central character on Good Friday at Golgotha is not the one on the middle cross. The central person, the central character at Golgotha is the one to whom the one hanging on the cross said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He said, I'm here on your will. It's your work you sent me. Now that sentness permeated him. Now uh, Uh, That is the thing that makes that cry so tantalizingly horrible when he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama Sabakani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were so close, and now a wedge is driven between them. Now this brought these Jewish believers to a new understanding of God. Because, you see, probably the most popular title for God among Jews was the king of all the earth. Amalekah, the king of all the earth. They looked, upon, looked at the Psalms. How many times speak about him as the king? Then they also believed he was the judge. He was the one who was going to straighten everything out in the ultimate day. And his name was so holy that you didn't dare pronounce it. I remember when I was at Princeton, we were reading an Isaiah scroll from the Dead Sea. One, of, I think it was B uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Isaiah. We had in our class a good Orthodox Jew. We'd read along and come to the name Yahweh, which or Jehovah, in, in the Greek, well, HWH in the Greek. Always when we came to that, the Protestant guys would say Yahweh. The name which God gave to Moses at the burning bush. But uh, when that Orthodox Jew came to that, he would just slide right in and say Adonai. Nobody ever heard him say Yahweh. Because you see, Adonai is a title. And the name of God is so sacred, you don't pronounce the name of God. And so, nobody knows how the name that was given to Moses was pronounced. The best scholarship says it was probably Yahweh, and uh, we developed a combination form that has nothing to do with the history. Jehovah, what it is, is the vowel, the consonants of the Hebrew linked to the vowels of of the word Lord, And so you've got a construct that never existed. But Yahweh is the best we know. But nobody's sure because, you see, it was unpronounceable. Now, if your God's name is unpronounceable, what does that say about intimacy? If you will look at good Jewish literature, I was looking at some Jewish children's literature. And they're talking about God. Do you know how they always spell God? G-D. Because the name's so holy that you don't even spell it out in English. And along comes Jesus and looks up and says, Father. You know something I never thought about until I was 75? The Apostles creed. You know how it began? I believe in God the first thing. And the most important thing. What's the next word? You know what we do? We subconsciously think the almighty part is the most important part. But do you know who it is that's almighty? Thank God. It's not the king. And it's not the judge. It's the father. Who happens to do some kinging. And happens to do some judging. (laughs) But he was the father before there was anything to king over. And he was a father before there was anything to judge. Now, what does that do to the ambience in which you find yourself facing God? It's not a courtroom where you've got a judge on the bench. It's not a court scene where you've got the king on the throne with a crown on his head. It's the kitchen table isn't it? and the family room and the heart you know one of the reasons that nobody believes, or it's so hard for people to believe in Christian perfection? Because we've got a judge who's looking for every foil. So nobody can be perfect, so forget about it. But did you know you can please a father? Do you know the kind of father nobody wants? The one you can't please. The one who sets a standard in front of you that you'll never attain. In this world, and keeps telling you to get there. That's destructive of human personhood. And that's the way much of our theology has presented God. The first thing about God is not his sovereignty. The first thing about the first person of the Trinity is that he is Father. And what does he want out of us, children? And he wants that spirit within our heart that looks up, and the first thing is we say, Father. Father. Now the early church was enamored by that. And so, do you know what happened? Nobody was ever asked in the early church if he believed in God. You know, some of these scholars now are saying that Christianity is not theistic, and they're orthodox. They're not saying that the Westminster Confession was not uh, is, is not is, is, they're not saying that it's bad, and it should be totally ditched. They're saying God's better than that. <laughs> he's all that's there, but he's better. And salvation is what's there, but it's better than that. And it comes out of this, this kind of thinking, you see. Now, uh, they, when they baptized anybody, they would ask three questions. <laughs> what do you believe? Do you believe in God? And they say, yeah, I believe in God the Father. Do you believe in the Son? I believe in Jesus Christ you believe in the Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit. You couldn't be baptized without the triune statement. And catechism, when they were taught the catechism, the basic part was that tri- triadic formula of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. you see it in the Lord's Prayer? When you pray, say, our Father. Okay. Now, he's the source of all things. Which all comes. The Father is is the original, and He is a metaphysical being. Yes, but He's more. He is He is the Father of Jesus, and we enter into that relationship that is His ontologically. We enter in uh, <coughs> metaphorically. Now that gave a, a new view of God to the early church, and you will remember that when Jesus was here, the Jewish leadership said, you're you're guilty on two scores. You've broken the law because you healed a man on the Sabbath and told him to carry his bed, and you call God your Father, which makes you equal with God. And so they were deeply upset about that. Uh, Now, the early church said, we can't explain all of it. We can't explain all the metaphysical aspects of it. But we know that when you've seen Christ, you've seen God, in some way or other. Both are God, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son's never been the Father, and the Father's never been the Son, but you, when, you, when you meet him, you've met the only God that there is. Now, we don't have time to go into that, but it was out of that kind of thinking that they came and said, he's triune, the Spirit. But now, notice what they dealt with in terms of the Spirit. And I hope we can get back to this. They said the Spirit is the key to Jesus' life. He's the one who conceived him in the womb of the Virgin. He's the one who baptized him, anointed him, and began his ministry. He's the one who is the secret of the power in Christ's life when he performed his miracle. If I, but the finger of God, you will remember Jesus said, cast out devils. Then the kingdoms come to you. And in the other synoptic, it says, If I, by the power, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then the king, his power was the power of the Spirit. Uh, And you will remember, it was the Spirit that took him through Calvary, and it was the Spirit that raised him from the dead. So the secret to the power in Jesus' life, interestingly enough, was not his deity, it was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was the one who enabled him to be tempted in all points, just like you are, and yet without sin. The key to his sinlessness was not in his deity, it was in his relationship as Jesus to the Holy Spirit. And if there's to be any victory over sin in my life, it will be because of a relationship to the Spirit who takes the atonement of Christ and works it out within my life. Now, out of all this, and... Uh, we got the jam stuff. They came to a complete, they're, they're coming to a very interesting, different view of the humanity of Jesus. That he was totally human. Now, he's divine. He's the God-man. But he's the window on what God is like. And he's the window on what a man, a human being, is supposed to be like. I hope we can get back to that. But in Jesus, you see, what I'm supposed to be, and the secret in his life was the Holy Spirit, and the last night of his life, he said, I'm going to give that spirit to you. So apparently, I have available for me in my life to enable me to live and please God the Father, the same source that was in his life. Now, what does that do to uh, holiness? and how I to live. Okay. Now, uh, one aspect of their understanding of the Father, which is very significant, you will remember, it's 1 Corinthians 15, where you get this magnificent passage on the resurrection, but tucked in it is a statement about Jesus, and about the Father. You will notice, and the early church placed great emphasis upon this. They said, when every knee is bowed, to Jesus and every tongue is confessed he has overcome every evil power then the son will render up the kingdom to the father from whence it came now did you hear that the son at the end will render up the kingdom to the father from whence it came so the son receives the kingdom from the father and he will return it to him so the first word is father And the last word is father. Now, let me say something. We have made a great mistake when we've looked at the human family to understand the father. Now, that's what I grew up with. In the old days of American liberalism, you know, we were taught the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And they said the most beautiful thing about God is that you can call him father. He's like your father. Now, that, you know, biblical truth is usually 180 degrees away from what we think it is. <laughs> because you see, the original Father is not my Father. And it isn't Adam. The original Father is the first person of the Blessed Trinity. And he's not a Father in the way we are. I'm supposed to be a Father in the way he is. And I'm a Father as the creature, he's the Father as the eternal God. And the pattern for me is in the very nature of God-headed son. You know how long I lived before I saw that? Now, what does that do to the human family? You see, if you get your concept of God right, it'll change everything you think. William Temple said, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to everybody else. Now, you know what Luther said? Luther said, if your concept of God's wrong, you're an idolater. And you know who he thought led the pack of idolaters? Systematic theologians. I dare you to read some of Luther. The gutsiness of the guy. Because he would say, the God that you worship is an idol. He doesn't exist. The God that we worship is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Now, so theology is important. Now, uh, He's not God is not a monad, though. He is the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So, he is a family. And the essential life of God, the eternal life he wants to give to us, is a koinonia, a fellowship, where the Father and the Son and the Spirit live together and love each other. Now, let me share something with you that just recently I noticed. It, there's, there's a great advantage in getting back to the Greek if you if you can. It's much more graphic and much, there's much more punch in it. I found myself reading, and I found that Jesus was using a prepositional phrase. And I thought about writing an article or preaching a sermon on, it's all in a prepositional phrase. Because the phrase is, op out e, or else out Now, if you remember your Greek, the op-em-out-to is from myself. And the op-em-out-to is from himself. Now, the way Jesus uses it, in some places he's speaking about himself, and he uses the expression from myself. In other places, he's speaking of himself in the third person. And when he refers to himself in the third person, he says from himself, and he's talking about himself. So the ah op- to te- is synonymous with the m op- out op- Now, how does he use it? By myself, I can do nothing. Now the you know what the Greek of by myself is? From myself. Now I like the from myself better than the by myself. Because you see, the by myself has the idea of I need him alongside of me. But when you say from myself, he's saying there's nothing in me that can meet the need out here. It's got to come from above. You follow me? Okay. Now, you get to the 7th. That's 5.30. You get to the 7th chapter. If anybody chooses to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak And the translation says, on my own. But the Greek is, whether I speak from myself. Jesus never spoke from himself. The Father's life lived through him, and the Father's word came through him. Now, in the 28th verse, he says, I'm not here on my own. The Greek is, I'm not here from myself. In the next chapter, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am not here on my own. I'm not here from myself. In the same chapter again, I have not come on my own from myself. The 14th chapter that last night, the words I say to you are not from myself. You see... uh, he couldn't He couldn't put the Father in the third person. And he wouldn't let them put the Father in the third person. Because he says, when you face me, you're facing him. Okay. He doesn't live for himself. He doesn't seek his own glory. He seeks to glorify the Father. And you know, when he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, you know what he says about him? He says, the Holy Spirit doesn't speak about himself. And he doesn't glorify himself. I came to glorify the Father. And the Father wants to glorify me. And the Spirit comes to glorify the Father and me. So it's interesting. Do you know what you're getting? At the inner heart of the life of God, perhaps the most significant word you can say is an other-orientedness. I wish I could say that as strongly as it needs to be said. If you could get into the very heart of God between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you know what you'd find? Total other oriented. Now, that's crucial to the image of God. Because if he's going to renew us in the image of God, he's got to put in us renew in us an other-orientedness that was there until Adam and Eve said, you know, we'd like that for ourselves. And the attention, they turned their attention this way instead of out, okay. What you find in the inner life of God is self-sacrificing love. Self-giving love. And the interesting thing is, this is the life he wants to give us. I have an Australian friend who was a drug addict, lived raising, selling marijuana so he could feed his, his heroin habit. And in an incredible way, God led a man into his life, and he was converted. Dramatically. Suddenly, unexpected. And the minute he got converted, he's suddenly in a new world. He never knew existed. And he's in a daze. And suddenly he said, I thought, my foot. My foot. I've got to find my foot. There is an escape from this stuff. You know, John says that's the mark that you've been born again. I remember I was (laughs) preaching in a Christian college. And I said, you know, I believe that the mark of the new birth is you suddenly are more concerned about somebody else than you are yourself. And the reason is you've got God's life in you. And do you know what God is? He cares more about you than he does himself. Do you know the eternal God cares more about you than he does himself? No other way you can explain Calvary. And if his life is in me, do you know what the proof is? I care more about him than to do me. Now that's not the way we live, is it? That's not the way American evangelicalism says you can mark the new birth. Have you prayed this prayer? The New Testament says the proof of the life of God in a man is that other-orientedness. It's interesting, let me say this, that in the period in American history when evangelicalism got center stage and the cover of Time Magazine could be the year of the evangelicals. And we've got the TV and we've got the magazines, and we've got the bookstores everywhere that didn't exist in the 1930s when I came along. When we got center stage as evangelicalism, the moral life of America collapsed. And you know why I think it collapsed? It's because we preach something infinitely less than the gospel. There is a bigger gospel here that the world needs, and there's a better God. And we have presented, and this is what these guys are getting at. Because <coughs> you see, it was this gospel and this God that brought the Roman Empire to its knees. Now, I'm not saying that early church was perfect; it wasn't. But there was a power in it that made it possible for you and me to be here today. And it was that gospel of another kind of God and another kind of gospel. Okay. Now, if we had time, what I'd love to I wish I, I wish I knew enough to make this graphic for you. You know what the theologians say about God, this God? That his being and his act are the same thing. Now, you know, the being is who I am. The acting is what I do. And you know what they keep saying about God? If you see his acts, you see his being. And if you see his being, you'll know how he acts. Do you know how you have better days? You say, I did a nice thing today. Not very often. The being and the act are separate. Do you know why I believe in entire sanctification? Because God wants to put the being and the act together in me to where I am what I do and I do what I am because he wants to renew me in the image of himself, because he's one. And the two are now separate. That has a lot of application. Who was this Jesus? They had to develop new language in order to describe what they were doing. So they developed a word for the nature of God, the being of God, homo zion, one of the most interesting intellectual stories in human history. And they developed another word, hypostasis ultimately was translated persona, for person, prosopon, And so they said, we have one God in three persons and three persons in one being who is divine. Now what is a person? The word person was their answer to the question of who Jesus was and who the Holy Spirit was. Father's a person, son's a person, spirit's a person. Now, I want to tell you how this began to makes make some sense to me. And it's a backdoor entry. Uh, I had a friend who said to me once, Ken Law, he said, I never have to take his notes where you're going. And then he got embarrassed and he said, but you do usually seem to get there. He never told me where I got. But let me run a scenario in which instead of working this way, we work this way. Because you see, these two worlds, there's a similarity between them. Between the God and us. And so... Now, this one can't control this one. You've got to understand this one to really know how to interpret this one, but this one gives a reflection of that one. I was working on Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10 is a discussion of Yahweh and idolatry. And he tells the Jews that they've turned their faces away from the true God and they've made their idols. And after he talked about the true God, then their idols are alternatives to the true God. He makes a comment about us. You know, it always happens. You can't stop with God or your idols. You've got to get back to us. And so you get this text. I know, O Yahweh, that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who walks to direct his steps." Let me repeat that. I know, bottom line statement, he's come to his conclusion. I know, oh Yahweh, he knows him by name personally, that Adam's way, and the word Adam is used for mankind, all of us, male, female, rich, poor, everybody, that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual, and two different words are used for Adam and individual. Two Hebrew words for man, Adam and Eve. I know that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who walks. And the who walks is simply a participle in Hebrew. And what it means is that a human being is goal-oriented. You see, we're made to go somewhere. You're made to go somewhere. You're made to do something. That's the reason you hate dead-end streets the way you do when you get caught on one, you feel frustrated because you're supposed to get where you're going, you know. Now, so man, we know his way is not in him, and he's goal-oriented. So his end is not in him. So uh, I'm goal-oriented, but the answer is not inside me. Well, oh, I got to kicking that around, and you know, I suddenly thought of something. I think I must have been 60 years of age. My wife has a saying when I say, have you seen, and she'll say, have you looked under your nose? I have a genius for not seeing the opposite. And that's I've been that way about scripture. As I thought about Adam, his way is not in himself, it's not in the individual human being. His end is not in him. You know, uh, it's in somebody else. And I began thinking how other-oriented you and I are. Where'd you begin your existence? Did you know? I suddenly thought, for every I spent nine months in somebody else's body. <laughs> she carried me around for nine months. She fed me for nine months. I lived out of her. Ah, am I too? That prepositional phrase. <friend. laughs> no, I didn't live from me. I lived from her. Uh, it's interesting. Nobody chooses to exist. A person does not choose to eat this. somebody else makes that choice. Uh, I noticed that everybody I have ever met has a father and a mother. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> Have you ever stopped to think about that? Could it be that everybody you've ever met has a father and a mother because everybody's supposed to know the father with a capital F? But well, anyway, then I thought, we're not self sustaining. Our life is not in us. I eat food, I drink water, and 18 times a minute without even knowing my body draws its life from outside me. My life is not in me. It comes from outside me. It's interesting we are not self-explanatory. There is no such thing as a typical person. You have to have two to explain one. And they have to be different from each other to explain one. That's my biggest reason for my position on homosexuality is wrong. You see, our existence. Comes out of the otherness of two people, not the likeness of them. And God's pattern is that in that otherness, there is new life created. So there's no way that you can explain one human, explain human beings if you've only got one example. You've got to have two. So I thought, for heaven's sake, then I know what it means to be a male. It means you're not all there. (laughs) <laughs> and the interesting thing is that applies to the other sex too we're made somebody beside ourselves that is different from us and we never find our fulfillment point number four nobody will argue with you on the first three because they're biological but the fourth one you get into something else our fulfillment is not enough Now, if my origin, my sustenance, and my explanation is not in me, why should it be shocking to find that my fulfillment's in somebody beside me? Jesus wasn't a fool when he said, love your neighbor. And the interesting thing he says, live in love the way God loved us. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And do you know what John's definition of love is? when you lay down your life for somebody beside you. Not when you live for you, when you lay it down for somebody else. So I thought, for heaven's sake, I came from somebody else and I'm made for somebody else. And if I'm to no fulfillment, that's the reason for that expression that God shapes vacuum in the human heart. There's an emptiness within us. Do you know what it means to be a person? You're incomplete. And then I thought, for heaven's sakes, if you had a perfect person, he'd be incomplete. I've felt a lot more comfortable ever since I heard that, thought that. If you had a perfect person, he'd be incomplete, because to be a person is to be incomplete. In fact, if you had a divine person, he'd be incomplete. And that's where the shocker came to me. Because do you know what I thought? See if you hear me here. When I ran through that list of not self-originating, self-sustaining, self-explanatory, or self-fulfilling, I said, God hooked me. He played a trick on me, and he made me so I need him. And I wouldn't have turned to him if I didn't need him. I'd have gone on my way. I'm so glad he hooked me. And then I read the Gospel of John. And you know what I found in the Gospel of John? Jesus says, I'm not self originating He said, I'm the only being, begotten son. He said, I'm not self-sustaining. My life is not in me. I draw it out of my father. He said, I'm not self-explanatory. I'm a son. And the only way you can explain a son is with a father. And he said, I'm not self-fulfilling. My will is to do the will of my father. That's my joy. I thought, well, that's Mary's son. And then I reread the Gospel of John. And you know what it is? It's the second person of the eternal trinity. It is God, the Son, himself, who must self-originate, self-sustaining, self-explanatory, or self-fulfilling. What does that do to human efforts at autonomy? We're going to help God. That's what you call the supreme idolatry. Now, if that's true of God and I'm made in his image, then how am I supposed to live? That's supposed to be my joy. <laughs> my joy that I'm not I'm not a complete image. My fulfillment is in another. Now, you see where that's going? It's rather obvious, isn't it? If he made us in his image, then Christ is the pattern for us. And it is others oriented. Holy. And that's raised some interesting questions to me as to what the word holy means. Holy love. Now, do you know that's where we got the English word person? You wouldn't have the word, words "person," "personality," "personhood," or uh, "personal" if the early church hadn't wrestled with the question of who Jesus was. And they took a word which originally meant face, then became a mask which an actor would wear to let you know what act, what role he was playing. Then it came to mean the role which the actor plays. Then it came to mean the character of the role which the of the, of the person in the role which the actor played, and the church came along and said, it doesn't say it, but there's no better thing. So we'll take a creaturely term, and we'll fill it with eternal meaning, and so they said we'll use it to describe the, person, the persons of the divine Godhead. Now, uh, that means that the most sacred thing in existence is a person. Now, you know, we said something a while ago about God's always in the first person. And we try to get him in the third person. Because when we get him in the third person, we're in control. When he's in the first person, the natural response even for the enemy is on his face. But when he's in the third person, then we can do our own thing. But you say, uh, you're supposed to treat persons as persons instead of things. And do you know what most of us do? We move like from, from Moses, or from Exodus, I am, to the one who is, to the it. Do you know how many pastors there are that use their congregations as a means of promoting their careers? Do you know that when you use a person for your own gain, you are guilty of biblical sin? I don't care who it is or where. You know, I see it with parents. Do you know the ego trip that parents go on when they have a child who's a good athlete? I mentioned that to a young lady the other day, and she said, my husband is a is a high school coach. Last night, he spent 20 minutes on the phone trying to explain why he didn't put that guy's son in the ball game long. Now, was that guy concerned about the team winning or the boy becoming a better player? What does he in? We get our satisfaction using other people. That may be the greatest sin that we ever commit. And that's natural to us. Because, you know, that's the way most of us get saved. You know how we get saved? Our guilt gets so heavy, we say, can you help me? Or I get so lost, or so bound up in a habit, I say, can you set me free? You know how sinful we are? We're so sinful that God has no way to get to us, except approach us in our sinfulness. But when he does it, you know why he does, why he comes, why he stoops to that? Because he's the one who can turn me inside out and make a person love, even the fellow who's crucified, stoning. See. Uh, that's what it means to be made in his image. Or renewed in his image. Now the early church was very interested in those passages that spoke about our being made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 5, 9, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 3, Roma, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, all these passages that speak you know, the one that intrigued them the most was First Corinthians 15, where not the resurrection, but the last Adam. They said, you see, the first Adam, that's where the problem came. And do you know what their definition of sin basically was? Luther expressed it in the Latin phrase, Cor impervitus ad se. Now, you know the word core. Comes, we get coronary from it, so the heart. Incurbitous, curved in, I'd say on itself. Now, uh, I believe in the moral law. God gave it, and it's His Word. But you know, He gave it for a mass of people. You know how He wants me to live? He wants me to live in unbroken communion with Him where the personal relationship is not destroyed, but kept intact and kept there where he's a, he finds joy in me and I find joy in him. Now, uh, what was Adam and Eve's sin? It was when they began to turn this way. And self-interest became more significant than other oriented. Now, uh, so they said, what is the image of God? The image of God is that other-oriented, where you have a true person. And when everybody was corrupted, then along came the second, the last Adam, Jesus. And you will notice that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that our salvation was in the man, Christ Jesus. Now, see if, see if I, can, I can hold you for this for a minute. I found one day five passages in the Old Testament where God looks for a person. Take, for instance, the 59th chapter of Isaiah. You know it, part of it at least, because he said, The Lord's arm is not shortened and he cannot save. And his ear is not heavy that he cannot hear. There's nothing wrong with God. He's got the power, and he's got the will. He's got the heart. He can hear, and uh, he wants to help you. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And then one of the most dismal pictures in all of Scripture, one from which Nietzsche got a line where he said, you need to light the lanterns at noon. Tomorrow darkness was so great. God says, you know who he was talking about? The church. (laughs) He was talking about Israel. You know to whom he was speaking? The holy city, Jerusalem. And he said, uh, I looked for a person. He said, if I could have found one person, God said, my circumstances would be different. Now, what fascinates me is when the omnipotent one has circumstances. But he said, I was astounded when I couldn't find one. And if it's surprising when omnipotence has circumstances, it's more surprising when omniscience gets shocked. God said, I was shocked I couldn't find one. Because he said, if I could have found one, my circumstances would have been different. I could have saved church the world. Now there are five of those passages in the Old Testament. Now the interesting thing is in 59 he says, and when I couldn't find one, mine own arm brought me salvation. You know what the first verse of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah is? I want to tell you an unbelievable story. The arm of the Lord has been revealed And what is the arm of the Lord? It's Jesus hanging on a cross. So suddenly it dawned on me when he said, look at the sin of the world and the lostness of it. And I needed to save it. He couldn't save it from heaven, because that's not where the problem is. And he couldn't save it by power imposed. He had to save it where the problem was and where is the problem? It's in us. So he had to find one of us. And so when he couldn't find one, he had to become one. And the eternal God became a baby. A fetus in Mary's womb. And how did By pouring out his life. Caring more about us. Than he did them. Have you got anybody you want to be saved? Have you got a community of people you're responsible for? Have we got a world we're responsible for? You know the only way I can be saved? God forbid that I should glory. Saving the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. by whom, which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. I come to the end of me, and say, pour me out where you will. Pour me out where you will. And pour me all out. How much did Jesus reserve? Now, let's lesson in you begin. had the line, which I missed. And young lady that works with me, uh, she caught it. One of the most amazing, most significant insights I think I've ever had. Leslie Newbigin is dealing, or, or wait a minute, Tom Torrance is dealing with the devil. And he says, do you know who the devil is? He is the supreme example of the entirely sanctified That's a problem. Do you hold on a minute? What does the word "sanctify" mean in its rudimentary, rudimentary meaning? It means separate. And he is totally separated to one end. And what is that? His hostility to God. You know what Tom Tyrant says? God's not interested. The devil's not interested in you. He's not trying to destroy you because of you. You know why he wants to destroy you? To break the heart of God. And so Satan turns all of the forces he needed God against us. So he can break the heart of God. We're itched. And you know what the supreme evil is? Is when it treats the poor of the world, the needy of the world, the lost of the world as those it's out there. And you know what Christ died on the cross to do? To restore me in the image of the one that was originally like him in that Father. Oriented love. And you know what Jesus said? He said to his disciples, if you'll live together that way, the world will know who I am. Do you know the only way the world's going to know who Jesus is? Is when we come to the place where, when I come to the place where I care more about you than I do myself. And they'll say, he's strange. Wonder what makes him so strange. Somebody will say it's tied up with that Jesus stuff. Now that's what holiness is. And do you know most people don't believe it's possible in this law? It's written by a philosopher in Princeton, Diogenes Allen. Don't you love that name for a philosopher, Diogenes? And he's written some brilliant stuff. I've profited, I profited greatly from stuff he's written. He's obviously a tough rapper but he's written a little book called The Path to Perfect Love. (laughs) Now, he's a solid Calvinist. And so I was fascinated when a good Calvinist writes on a Wesleyan subject. So I got the thing, read it, and the first three chapters are magnificent. Do you know what they are? He takes secular writers who are writing as secular writers and tells about moments in the lives either of the person in actuality or in the character in the in the in the novel, where that person in a moment experienced a transforming love of somebody beside himself, and it's always pictured as one of great joy, great freedom great creativity, and the kind of thing your heart yearns for. And he uses secular writers to describe it. And then he says, that's what the Bible talks about, and it says, perfect love. Now he said there's only one problem. You can't live there. You may, on some rare occasion, have a moment transcend yourself. But we won't be able to live that way till we get to heaven. The resurrection will clean us up. Now you know my problem with that? Jesus said, if the world knows who I am, they're going to have to see it before they get there. And all of the texts I find, the really binding ones, Tell that's the way we're supposed to live now. And you know how I felt when I got to Reading Dodge in these hours? I felt like I had had a horrible day. I'd spent all the energy I had. It was blistering hot, and he stuck a hot fudge Sunday under my nose. And as I reached for him, he said, "Yo, you can't have it. That's waiting. So you got to wait till the resurrection for that." That is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't put a standard in front of us. That he cannot enable us to attain, and the Spirit that worked in Jesus can set him free to live that life. He can set you and me free to live that life. But let me say, it's not a lot. The miracle is not the sign of his power. That's the place where we have missed it in American evangelicalism. You know what is the sign of his power? The deliverance from the tyranny of self interest, where a person can have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2. He doesn't say, what's in it for me? He doesn't say, how will I look? He doesn't grumble and say, I deserve better than this. He doesn't argue and say, yes, Lord, but... The interesting thing in that passage, which I never heard anybody preach on, I've always heard it preach on 2nd Philippians 2, 5 to 11. But what it means for you and me is in 1 to 4 and in the rest of the chapter. And you know what he says about Timothy? He says, I want to send Timothy to you as soon as I can. Because he's the only person I've got who's not thinking about himself. So apparently Timothy got there. And then he said, and you know, I rejoice in the privilege of being poured out like a drink offering for you. What's a drink offering? When you pour it out and it's all gone. And he said, my joy is to spend and be spent for you. And do you know, in one place he says, imitate me. Those passages used to irritate me. I thought Paul was an extremely cocky, arrogant guy. But do you know if you'll read closely enough how he said we're supposed to imitate? by pouring out our lives from somebody beside ourselves. And he did. But you know the worst of it? I was reading Ephesians through. I wanted to read it at a sitting. And I got to the fifth chapter and started it and read the first two verses and burst out laughing. You know what Paul said? He said, Imitate God. And I laughed and I said, boss, you've missed it. He imitate God. (laughs) The omnipotent one, (laughs) there are few people who've tried that in human history (laughs) and end up as fools. The omniscient one, if I've got a problem, the normal thing is if I find a solution to the question, I'll pick up ten more questions I didn't have before I worked on the problem. So my knowledge is exploding ignorance, not exploding knowledge, and omnipresent. I must admit that email uh, is sort of a move in that direction, but it's still a little ways away. So I laughed. Then I took a second look, and you know what it says? It doesn't talk about omniscience. It doesn't talk about things he did actually, in that, or his attributes in that in that in that way. You know what it talks about? Imitate God. Live in love. And do you know how he defines love? As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sweet smelling savor to God. Now, if I read that, Paul believes there is a grace that is available for me where my life can be a sweet-smelling savor to God. And what is it? you know what it is? He puts His Spirit in me. And you know who His Spirit is? His Spirit is one that never speaks about Himself. His purpose is to glorify the Father and the Son. And if I get His fullness of His Spirit in me, that's what He'll work out in me. I live for somebody and something beyond me. I don't ask you a question, but it's untrue. Is he in the first person for it? If I knew how to say that, we'd be on our faces, you know. But my second question is Is there a bit of self interest left somewhere in you? It's contaminating the witness. You see, in our heritage, Wesley said you could be clean. And how did he live? He lived his life, poured out. Nothing to do, that book we gave him, but to save souls. Now, the burden for me is this. Very few people believe that's possible. Very few Christians. I read these guys and they talk about it, set it up, and then he said, of course you can't live there. You'll know that after the resurrection. And you know, they're good people. You know why they come to that conclusion? They've got a paradigm in their head that precludes any other conclusion. And do you know we've seen a different paradigm? No credit to us. No credit to us. But what an obligation. You know what I wanted to say to Dodge in these alleys when I got It's not a question of whether I can live there. It's a question of whether he can live there through me. That's the reason Jesus said, Father. I want you to live in them the way you're in me and I want to live in them the way I'm in you and I want them to live in us the way we're in each other and the way we're in them. Are you living there? If everybody in this crowd went back into his local context, family-wise, church-wise, business-wise, community-wise, and if we let him pour that kind of grace into it, the interesting what we'd have to say a year from now would